think that music coming out of the continent in a lot of ways, it really does like describe like the tastemaker culture. I always hear the songs first in Ghana. I learned about I'm a piano in Ghana, even Peru. I was in Ghana back in August and that's when I first heard the song. Like I think because of the just diaspora nature, right? So people like myself or other first gen or second gen folks going home and saying like, oh, wow, like this is the next big thing out here and kind of taking it back allows for that to happen. Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcie. This podcast is your place to gain insights from the executives in music, media, entertainment, and more who are taking hip-hop culture to the next level. Today's episode is all about fans, specifically as it relates to music festivals, because the people that see you perform at music festivals are not necessarily the same people that see you perform when you're on a tour. And on this episode, I was joined by Denisha Kulor, who is the founder and CEO of Stan, a company that focuses specifically on helping artists make better decisions based on their fan engagement. And we talked all about what it's like for artists that focus on music festivals. And while music festivals can be a great way to reach new people and a great way to get a good check, especially if you're a headliner performing at one of the big ones, it doesn't replace the things that don't scale and doing the hard work of building a fan base and going out there and meeting the people that actually want to see your music and see you in person. So we talk about that. We talk about some of the current trends and the trade-offs and what Denisha is currently seeing specifically in Africa with artists like Burna Boy and Wizkid and Deo and others that have really made the most of the constraints that they've had, but how it actually helped improve their careers as well. We also talked about the music investment landscape, specifically in Africa, some of the opportunities there, some of the differences as it relates to music streaming, and then we chat a little bit more about STEM and what Denisha is building towards. This is a really fun combo. I hope you enjoy it. Here's my chat with Denisha. All right. Today, we're joined by Denisha Kulor, who is the founder and CEO of Stan. And Denisha, you recently wrote a awesome guest piece in Trapital about the downside of music festivals. So why did you write this piece? Let's talk about it. Yeah, so it's been something that's been in my mind for for a long time. I think even on the consumer side, I've changed, I guess, how I patronize music and seeing artists and really just wanted to talk about like how that impacts my relationship with the with the artist. I think we've been really conditioned and excited as consumers to attend festivals that optimize for seeing as many artists as possible. But when I think about some of my favorite music moments, frankly, they weren't at a festival, always a show that the artists headlined themselves. And so when I think about the impact and with touring coming, kind of coming back, you know, since restrictions because of COVID, I think it was really important to explore from both an artist and somewhat a fan perspective. Yeah. One of the things I think you highlight as well, especially on the artist perspective too, we could easily get caught up in the allure of festivals. People always want to see who's headlining Coachella and what does it mean? And there's not going to be as much of a headlining or newsworthy thing if you're doing your own festival. But in a lot of ways, that's where you really meet your fans everywhere. And in a lot of ways, 
that makes much more of a difference in the long term, even if the initial check size isn't as big, which you called out. Exactly. And in a weird way, festivals have almost become like very industry, I guess, and everything leading up to the festival, right? The politics behind being picked, where your name is on the flyer and and what that represents. And while they're all great, I guess, points that can help an artist in the right direction, I think there's other ways to do it that maybe don't initially come with some of that fanfare. I totally agree. So what are some of those ways? Yeah, so I really, to, I guess, put a tech or venture lens on it, but the the great essay of, like, doing things that don't scale, right? Like, I think so often as an artist or as an aspiring artist, it's really easy to look up to the really big things. Like you said, those are the things that are newsworthy. Those are the things that are covered and that people, like, see as amazing. But I, I think that artists right now have, like, a really unique ability to just play around, right, and play around with what that means. So I think a lot about Burner Boy's interview and billboard recently and even though he just like headline msg is the first nigerian act to do that and has been breaking a ton of records like he just kind of was like the next big thing for me is touring in like avant-garde venues or venues that you typically wouldn't and while he's a big star that's something that's really feasible for small artists as well right you know venues uh, venues in tradition and that's why i love what like so far sounds is doing or other platforms but i think so often it's easy to have like a uniform idea of what a tour looks like or even what connecting with your fans look like. And I think sometimes just bringing together like even 20 or 25 people that want to see you, that are willing to take their time in like this world of an attention deficit, like someone giving an hour or two hours of your time just to appreciate your art is really amazing. And I think that artists are so used to like just sold out a thousand, a thousand seats or 2000 or 3000 or the quantitative numbers kind of don't allow them to connect on a qualitative level. Right. And everyone has to start somewhere. But I feel like in this era where there's so much instant gratification, people don't always want to go through the steps of shooting in the gym or any of that to get to that point. And I think part of what makes it tough, even if they are willing to do it, sometimes the optics can be a bit scary just because of how things are set up. I think one of the things that you mentioned in the piece and we were talking about afterward is just how if an artist gets booked on a festival Everyone may not necessarily be there to see them, even the people that are standing there, but there's this optic of, look at me performing in front of these 8,000 people that are immediately in front of me, right? But if they go and do their own show and they can't sell 1,000 tickets, or if they have one of those things where they're performing and you can see so much space in between the people that are standing in the audience, then there's a bit of a vanity piece where it's like, are you comfortable with that, even though you know that that's how you build a fan base? Yeah, yeah so true. You know, as we were talking about that point, I thought a lot deeper about it. And a dynamic, I think, that's also really important is almost like how social media accessibility also plays from a peer perspective. And so these artists, while you can be a small or newer upcoming artist, you can, I guess, be or feel like your peers with artists that are way larger than you, just for proximity to that artist. And as a result, you almost kind of feel like embarrassed 
if you will. It's like a freshman hanging out with a senior, right? They're going to do senior things, whether it's going to prom or what, like whatever. But there's like really levels in social media and I guess just other mediums have kind of taken away some of those levels. And as a result, like Issa Rae quote, people are so busy like networking that they're not networking across. And as a result, who or what they compare themselves to creates a false sense of reality when it comes time for their own careers. Yeah. I think that if you're on that stage, you think, okay, yeah, I'm here, but you're really not. There's a huge difference. And as we both know, festivals get sold by the headliners and the further, the smaller your font size is for better or worse, the more interchangeable you actually are. And I think an instance of this, I know I've written about this recently, was looking at Koi Lorray, and a lot of people had made a bit of noise about where things look like from her perspective and her numbers, because she had so many things that were cosigns in her favor in terms of yeah. being signed to Republic. She had songs with Nikki and Dirk. She performed on Fallon, BET Awards, Benzino's daughter, over 6 yeah. million Instagram followers. But- when it came time to sell her album, we're talking 11,500 units, which is around, I mean, less than 20 million streams in a week, which isn't that much. There's plenty of other legacy albums that get more than that. And then they recently announced her tour and she's doing a mix of festivals and tour stops, but her tour stops, their cities in less than 500 capacity venues. And I don't think it's just her necessarily. I think this applies to a lot of people, but it's just such a big difference where, okay, your followers are not necessarily your fans. And I think the distinction between touring and doing, you know, festivals highlights that more than anything. I think she's been a really interesting one to watch, if only for all the things you mentioned. She's a great example of kind of new artists these days. And it begs the question, like, if attention at all even really equals any type of conversion to, like, true patronage. And something I find is that, like, in a digitally native generation, they don't view attention, or maybe even we, like, we don't necessarily view attention in a positive or negative sentiment. Just because, in a way, you're willing to give your attention to something doesn't mean in any way it's potentially in your favor when the time comes that that attention will convert to something really tangible. But I also, you know, in her case, being signed, you know, being signed to Republic, I think it continues to, like, push that conversation of what A&R should look like now. You know, reading a lot about how A&R has evolved and having conversations with people in the industry, I think before, or, or now it's evolved, right, to like leveraging data, right? And so many people talk about data. You can, of course, leverage this data to find these up-and-coming artists. But then once you do or decide that you want to invest in this artist and work with this artist, what do those conversations kind of look like early to promote that strategy and kind of sometimes force the artist to, to go slow before they can go fast. I mean, we've all seen documentaries of artists from decades ago and kind of all the pre-work they did before even being pushed to being allowed to release a single or being allowed to perform a song. And that looks very different now. It almost seems like things are backwards, but not in a reverse engineer backwards. It's more just like this happened. And so now let's capitalize on that. And I think that we're kind of seeing some of the negative effects of premature success, if you will. Yeah, for sure. I think that on a more recent level, I think about Olivia Rodrigo here in the US, everyone saw how big Sour was and they were like, oh, well, you could go to arenas now. And it sounds like her and her team talked about it. They're like, no, we're going to stick to the halls that we have. And it looks like she's performing in 
venues that have, you know, roughly several thousand, you know, capacity. At least that's what I saw here when she came through in San Francisco. And I think she may have done like Radio City or some of the others. I would have to check. But I feel like that makes sense, you know, just given that. But I think this dynamic is even more pronounced in Africa, which a lot of the artists which have recently become superstars there as well. And you talked a lot about that in the piece. And Berna Boy, who I think is a great case study on this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, one, just love the music coming out of the continent. And two, I think it's really fascinating in the way artists have to position their careers to really succeed both in the continent and on a global scale. You know, part of it in a way probably comes from social economic factors. And then as well as just having like really migrant diasporas. But because of that, artists are like really, I think, forced to prioritize performing in the beginning. And when you look at the audience, right, it is kind of those things that don't scale. It's the weddings. It's the really small club performances. It's the open mics, like things that used to be very common for artists everywhere, but seems like has kind of kind of slowed down. And so as a result, I think without having an A&R, they kind of do their own A&R, right? You've heard stories of artists who would come to a country once and like nobody came to see them. And then three years later, the show was sold out. And so artists are not only able to refine their performances, they get quick feedback loops. And, and they do it in a way that I think is authentic to them and their sound. And it forces them to win people over, right? If you're performing at a wedding, the percentage of people that might like you could be high, could be low, but ultimately you want to walk away with more fans, right? These people are giving you an opportunity to convert them or at least to try. Whereas now I think, unfortunately, a little bit of entitlement <laughs> that comes with some artists, right? Even from being upset when the audience doesn't react a certain way. And that's just like a humility that I I think African artists have, have embraced in terms of converting converting the fan or the listener. And I think you see that even more when the artist really begins to take a global approach. Everybody from, you know, DeVito shouting out the power of the power of New York or why music from the continent has been able to get so big as of recently. And so I think that African artists are a great example in terms of looking to to kind of do that slow climb and that slow work to be able to get to the point where they can sell out arenas today. Right. It's like the constraints that the industry has forced them to do the yeah. things that don't scale. And because exactly. they did that, that's how they're in the position they are today. And that's why Berta Boy's selling out Madison Square Garden. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it's a safe space, if you will, to to get feedback. I think, you know, so often as an artist, you're, of course, refining who you are and creative direction and all of that. But there's just some things that come from experience with being a performer and constantly just having those feedback loops to, to iterate on what songs work, what transitions work. When you see a Beyonce at Coachella, that's years and decades of being able to study crowd reaction of how certain things flow what works, what doesn't work to put on a show like that. Yeah, the feedback loops piece is key too, because obviously that's going to be harder to get from a festival because you don't even know if half these people are just, you know, burning time until the headliner comes. But you can actually see yeah. what the folks you're trying to reach resonate with. And this is something that I always thought about. Tyler Perry, of course, this isn't music, but with his place, he would always talk about this, how he would 
switched things up. He's going on this large tour across different parts of the country. He's going to use certain jokes or use certain lines that are going to work in the South that aren't going to work in the Northeast and aren't going to work on the West Coast and things like that. And anyone that is performing that actually sees how the people that they are reaching interact with the stuff while they're doing it, it almost always leads to a better product so that when they are doing the movies or when they are doing the mass thing, they can hit the ground running. Yeah, that's really true. And, you know, as you're talking, it makes me think about like, maybe there's even a certain archetype of artist and like, one that doesn't like heavily involve performance. Like I think a lot about comedians and what the what a comedian looks like now. You have Instagram comedians or, you know, TikTok comedy is, as it's referred to, but not many of them are thinking about going on tour or doing stand-up. And so maybe in some ways, even all-encompassing performer is different now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do think that for the people that are doing things live, it is easier to see it. I think that Honestly, for people that write or podcast, it could be tougher because you any type of feedback, there has to be at least some level of intent to let me reply to this email or let me follow up. I do think it's relatively easier for someone that has a newsletter to be able to do it relative to someone that's just writing standalone on a website. But I do think that when podcasters have live events and that is attracting people in a certain area, like that's how they're able to get around this. But everyone, I think most creators, the more IRL things you have, whatever it is that you create, you're going to get more value out of that. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. Yeah. The person that I think actually kind of challenges this with some nuanced perspective is Cardi B, especially at the highest level, just considering that we're now, it's been four years since Invasion of Privacy. I think it's been five years since Bodak Yellow came out, which is wild to say, But I think there's a few things. One, she's yet to do a true formal tour. And she's been the first to say that with, hey, I'm getting seven-figure guarantees to go do stuff over in Europe. And sometimes I even get those checks here in the US to perform in headline festivals. Why would I go through all of the things that are involved with touring? And to be fair, there are some challenges that many artists have with touring, whether it's, okay, making sure that the lighting and everything is set up right and the production looks great on that first event that you have, because if that doesn't hit right, then that's going to impact the sales for everything else. So even though we know that, yeah, that's part of doing things that don't scale, you have to do it. Some artists are fearful of that. And I think sometimes she may, you know, or at least she's alluded to her avoiding that or even just the cost. Like she even talked herself about how the first time she did Coachella, it cost her more money than she actually got from the events of doing it just because of how much she spent on those things. And, you know, she, at least from her perspective, sounds like she wants to be able to build up leverage likely in order to command a, you know, 40, 50 plus city arena tour that would likely match up with her star power. And I feel like that's part of the thing, because I remember there was this debate going on where people are wondering, okay, you know, if she does like what she would do. And of course, you know, all the Nicki Minaj haters are being like, oh, well, she's not doing a tour because she can't sell out a tour. And it's like, okay, I don't think it's that, (laughs) you know, egregious. You all can, the barbs can relax a bit. But I do think that, you know, part of what I think makes it kind of tough, especially from a, a social following perspective, which I know is something that we've talked about before, is that with certain artists, 
the reason that people follow you, you mentioned this earlier, is it always because they're like vibing with your music? I mean, yeah. Cardi B puts out a lot of, you know, beauty shots to show off her yeah. fashion, to show off her glamour. And some people may like that stuff and they may have not even listened to WAP or any of the, you know, yeah. bigger hits she has. So how do you quantify that? So I'm very interested to see one, what this next album looks like and what her next live performance strategy looks like. Yeah, you know, if I was like thinking about what would be interesting for Cardi B, I think ultimately it'd be kind of a hybrid experience, right? Like, I think you nailed it on the head in the sense that Cardi is the lifestyle, a lifestyle brand that has many different pillars that stand for many different things and people really resonate with her, but for all types of things. And so, you know, you see more artists creating their their own festivals. And I don't know if there's a potential to like pilot what that like hybrid concept could look like maybe in the Bronx or somewhere unique to her but I think that ultimately it will need to encompass everything that she represents and so while the music will of course be one of those pillars I feel like it could be or would be so much so much more and given that she has so many brand deals and endorsements with companies that really appreciate her for the lifestyle brand that she is I think it could be really really unique even a partner with a festival promoter you know Rolling Loud is working with Chris Brown Lil Baby as they go on tour like even to to have that partnership in a way that's really authentic and unique to her, I think is going to be fascinating. I feel like she's the artist that can kind of push the envelope in terms of experiencing her or artists in a way that we haven't necessarily thought of. You know, so often I think about, I think about like the rise or of nightclubs and like branded parties. And right now you kind of see like two things, right? There's like really popular nightclubs that will just exist by virtue of like being a marquee name, whether that's the live and live on a Sunday. But then you also have parties, right? And the parties exist without the the venues. What I constantly think about is like everyday people is the party. It's not about where everyday people is, more so where they're going. And so I think that's like a similar thing that Cardi brings and the ability that she's so much of the brand that it's more so about what she wants to do and where she'll bring people to that medium versus following the traditional way things have been done before. Yeah, I think the branded piece and especially being able to have some type of partner with the concert or with the tour more broadly would be big because I'm thinking about some of the recent ones we've seen. And even some of these are just slight nuances like Kendrick Lamar partnered with Cash App for his Big Steppers tour he has coming up. I saw The Weeknd has one of these crypto companies. I think it's Binance. Yeah, Binance is doing his tour. He's doing like a big stadium tour for this run that he has coming up. And I think that just opens it up to be like, yeah, you can have many other folks. It doesn't always necessarily have to be, you know, Visa credit card holders to get the pre-check or whatever it is to get the early thing. You know, you can actually have, you know, other partners that are aligned with many of the brands and partnerships that Cardi has already had relationships with. And I really thought, you know, the Kendrick and Cash App partnership was fascinating to me because of, I feel like the message it said, right? Like to me, it almost said like, let's make this tour accessible to all our fans versus the barrier to entry. You know, while it's nice to have an Amex Platinum, not everyone does. So like versus the barrier to entry. And I think that's another really important thing with with touring, right? Like controlling the barriers to entry in which your fans get to see you. And so, you know, it just really symbolized to me that like in a way, Kendrick like wants his biggest fans there and he's going to remove the barriers to entry to do so. So that was, a, I really enjoyed seeing that partnership. Yeah, that's a great point because I think one of the challenges that we've seen over the years with 
live shows and live entertainment pricing for events is artists that are trying to price things in a way to give fans a fair chance, but also understanding that the reseller market is going to, you know, take it up to a crazy amount. And then you have artists buying back and then trying to sell themselves as resellers. And I know it can just get so messy when you see that, but I think it's clearly done because they want to be able to make sure that the actual fans can do it. But yeah, if you're just giving it to like Amex platinum and black card holders, then it yeah. isn't going to work. Like we've all exactly. seen the dynamics of how cash app grew cash app grew because of hip hop fans, because yeah. of hip hop influencers pushing this. And then that's how they're able to grow in the South and grow in places that Venmo didn't grow. So have it all lined up. If you're trying to reach those people. Exactly, exactly. You know, in, in the years to come, and especially with the rise of rise of tech, and really probably as a result of rising customer acquisition costs on Facebook ads and other platforms, partnering with tech companies is going to be a great source, a great source of revenue. And I think just authentic partnership for artists. And ultimately, it'll come down to their methodology behind choosing the right partners and what it says about how they value or how they desire to connect with their audiences. So I'm excited to see more, more partnerships, especially Especially, I guess, not just in the fintech space, but consumer technology space overall. And I think we can tell, you know, even just as regular fans, whether it's authentic or not, Cash App made so much sense. Everybody was like, of course. And I think the best part about it was people were like, oh, I have an account. Like, I've already done X thing. And so this just naturally fits in with my lifestyle. Yeah, definitely. And I I think we'll see more of it. I hope we continue to. I know a lot of these companies have been US based, but I'm really excited to see what's going to be coming from Africa specifically, because there's so much music activity. We already talked about the artists coming through and how the artists themselves in many ways will have better chops just because of the constraints that, you know, are there that currently exists, which we talked about earlier. What are you seeing in the space? What excites you? Yeah, I've been really excited about everything coming out of the continent, both from a music standpoint and venture standpoint. It's interesting because for a long time, telcos have been heavily involved in underwriting artists, artist careers, right? So a lot of performances and even festivals are heavily sponsored by a telcos on the on the continent. And so they've always had a role and I think kind of understood the value in investing and partnering with, with artists early. I think what's evolving is the amount of money Money coming to the continent, especially as it relates to startups and funding tech companies. And so as a result, like they realize the value as well in investing in music. And you see a lot of those partnerships. I mean, Chipper Cash is partnered with Burna Boy, right? And so like looking at like one of the most valued fintech companies in Africa and one of the biggest artists in Africa, I think we're going to continue to see those relationships and those partnerships. I also think that it's going to evolve to a natural progression that we saw here is that our Artists want a bit more, a bit more of the pie. And so, while you know, speculating, I, I think a lot of these deals are, you know, cash, maybe a small range of cash and a little bit of equity. I think we're going to see artists want to become a lot more hands-on, especially for projects that are commoditized. And in a lot of ways, remittances or some of these fintech products are are really dependent on your ability to have a license. And so as artists maybe get to start to be able to navigate that landscape and bring together teams, I would be, I wouldn't be surprised to see them launch products of their own in similar spaces. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, there's so much. I also look at what's happening in music specifically. Of course, as we know, all the major record labels have presence, not just yeah. in the 
you know, continent overall, but in the different areas, I mean, it's huge. You can't just, you know, have presence in South Africa and think you're going to cover everything happening sub-Saharan yeah. or everywhere else. Like you need to be focused on what's happening in particular areas. And I think too, we saw earlier this year, Andreessen Horowitz had made its first investment in that mobile games company, Carry First. Yeah. I think we're going to see more and more of that. And I do think that we're going to see even more innovation happening in music. I know that all the streaming services have been trying to acquire more subscribers and more listeners in those places, but the dominant listening in many ways is still downloads and the companies that have been able to focus on that. So there's so many unique aspects that I'm excited to see play out. Totally. Another, you know, another, I guess, thing that's really interesting to me is the kind of the conversation lately as it relates to like what type of music has dominated. I've seen and talked to a lot of folks who kind of hypothesize that like the reason music coming out of the continent has grown so much is because it's very universal in a way where everybody can participate, like say on the dance floor, just experiencing the music versus kind of some of the hip hop and rap music that has dominated that's really driven by club culture and bottle popping culture and VIP and sections and, and that whole thing. And so I find that I find that dynamic fascinating as well in the kind of the universal sense that it brings. You see that on like TikTok, like how many like dances can you make to a song about like popping bottles versus just like a really great beat? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Do you feel like TikTok is having the same impact there on the continent that it is in the U.S.? Are you noticing anything that's unique or different? I I really think that music coming out of the continent in a lot of ways, it really does like describe like the tastemaker culture. As someone who's spent, you know, time in Ghana as well as in the States, like I always hear the songs first in Ghana. I learned about I'm a Piano in Ghana, even Peru. I was in Ghana back in August and that's when I first heard the song. Like I think because of the just diaspora nature, right? So people like myself or other first gen or second gen folks going home and saying like, oh, wow, like this is the next big thing out here and kind of taking it back allows for that to happen. So in a lot of ways, I feel like I go or spend time on the continent to see to see what's new. And then TikTok is probably the biggest indicator of what's most likely to take off from there. But I would look at, you know, some of these cities, especially around nightlife as more of the curators and and the tastemakers and TikTok just being a mirror of in some ways the work that's already been done. Okay. So it's more so following the culture, not setting it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think to to some extent that's, I would say maybe it's, it's a little different in the US because I do think that what we see on TikTok in some ways does set where people end up following, at least here. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I think you just see so many trends originating from things people do. You're more likely to see clips from TikTok posted and shared on other platforms as opposed to what you may see vice versa. So I feel like, yeah. I agree. I think it's definitely, I think it's definitely very different. And I think it's what makes being an artist a little, a little tricky because if you are an American artist, for example, and your song is becoming the biggest thing in Ghana, that probably has very, you know, different implications for how you navigate that or how you think about career and how you think about strategy. And, you know, unfortunately, I guess if you're an artist, maybe 
who has risen on TikTok primarily in the States, what does that mean when it comes time for touring or time to do a date? How is that attention converted? Because the fact of the matter is American fans just have more opportunities to patronize their favorite artists. When you look at the amount of venues and just like analysis to ways you can interact with artists here, there's just so many, so many options. And so that conversion rate is really high or is harder. Yeah. And that reminds me of something else I've heard artists say, this isn't anything new, but they've said that they always get more love when U.S. artists specifically, they always get more love when they perform outside of the U.S. because the U.S. artists, they see plenty of things there or the U.S. fans necessarily, they have more opportunities to see you. So they're not necessarily as like wowed or they take the moment in as special as it is, as opposed to the artists that are going outside of the USA. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I talked to folks around when J. Cole performed in Nigeria, and I think that was such a great example. Like he had just released the album that day and was shocked that people knew that people knew every word. And specifically, I think when artists come to the continent, it's always an occasion, right? People are really excited. Cardi B was a great example. People are just like really excited in some ways that they're like participating. Like we didn't go to you. You came to us. You value us enough to to do that. And I think, you know, regardless whether it's Africa or Japan or even Europe, like there's just a, yeah, there's just a different level of, of appreciation and people really, really hold on to it as an experience that will, that will be with them. And unfortunately, because of some of these, these festivals, like you can casually see an artist that you don't even like that much multiple times like you know i don't i don't know the numbers off the top of my head but let's say if you go to every rolling loud festival in new york just once a year how many artists have overlapped or how many artists have you seen multiple times just as a result of patronizing that one festival and so as a result the star power the whole genesee quad kind of kind of falls away but i think you don't get that same type of i guess performance burnout or consumer burnout when you do headline your own tour because it's something different every time it's experiencing, you know, Beyonce fans, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but I think that's the beauty in what her Coachella performance was. Everyone knew the songs, right? We knew the music for the most part, but it, it was now just experiencing it in a different way and in a way that she wanted us to experience it. And unfortunately, I don't think artists get to do that in the same way with festivals they're not headlining. Yeah, the Rolling Loud example always makes me think of Future. I always say that he has low-key residency at that. <laughs> I I actually went back and counted this. I forget how many Rolling Louds there have been, but at least 40% of them he has been a headliner at. Wow. I mean, it's a high number. And to your point, I mean, I'm sure the paycheck's great. I, I'm not concerned about you know Future from a money perspective. He is yeah. prolific and... I mean, he had one of the best selling albums so far this year. But yeah, to your point, that is kind of, I think, Future's model that clicks with that as well. He's going to put out music early and often. He's going to perform and he's always going to be there. And I think for him, it works, but it's just not going to be the same thing necessarily as a Beyonce record or something like that. You know, I'm curious, how do you think that impacts like an artist's elasticity? Like, of course, with more and more artists selling their catalogs and just navigating the world as an artist very differently. How do you think that does impact their just elasticity in the music game overall? I think it's twofold because I think that to one point, a lot of artists do feel like they have to keep the content machine turning, I think that's kind of lines up with 
Daniel Ek, Spotify CEO, and what he had said that was a polarizing statement at the time of you releasing music every three years isn't going to be enough anymore. So I do think that someone like Future has leaned into that and say, okay, I have this base and I know they're going to listen to everything that I put out, whatever I do it. So let me maximize that. And I think for someone like Future, because as popular as he is with a particular demo one his mainstream popularity isn't quite where it was like when like ds2 came out in 2015 so he's definitely serving more of the large but you know core fans and i think just given some of the issues that people have about him and of course we've all seen the memes about you know problematic future sending you know the text to the (laughs) to the x or whatever it is like I don't think that he necessarily has the same marketability to, let's say, mm-hmm. go launch a you know huge whatever it is the same way that we see to Beyonce or Rihanna yeah. do it. That doesn't mean he can. Obviously, sells the platform. So I do think for him and even someone like an NBA young boy who yeah. you know was even younger, them releasing music early and often kind of works for them because they may not get, you know, like the big deal from whatever company wanting to partner with them, but they could reach their fans directly. So they're going to maximize that. So I think it's a little different though, when you are a Beyonce or you are a Rihanna where, you know, there's so many other things you're doing. So when you release music, you do want it to hit because you want it to have this halo effect over everything else that you're doing. There's anomalies yeah. to this, of course. I mean, or not anomalies, but I think some folks do it differently. I mean, Drake is still going to give you a release every year, every other year. Kanye West has likely been doing the same. But I do think that that's still different than, you know, how like Future is going about it. Agreed. Agreed. I wonder if 10 years from now or 15 years from now, if Future is still touring or even releasing music, what that relationship looks like and even what a tour would look like given the brevity of music he's put out yeah to be honest i think he likely will it's just a matter of like you know what does it look like how big and like you know like the dynamics there i recently posed the question on twitter which artist do you expect to still be releasing music when they're 70 plus years old i don't think many people mentioned him but i would definitely put him in that category i feel like Not too far away from 40. I do think that, you know, he loves this for better or worse. And I feel like he'll likely continue. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, in in rap, it's still so new, which is crazy that we just haven't seen enough examples of that. And so these probably or artists like Future will be those those examples for us to look back at. Definitely. And I think so much of this and with this whole conversation, we're talking about the relationship between fans and how fans really help you format what you're doing and how to really set the framework for your career. And this aligns with the work that you're doing now. You recently launched and announced the company you have with Stan that is helping artists have a more fan-focused approach to their career. So can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So I recently decided to go full time on a music tech startup called Stan, focused on audience engagement infrastructure. So really to help artists understand their audiences at a micro and macro level with the goal of providing better fan experiences. I kind of think it's crazy in some ways that every industry that wants to encourage a repeatable customer behavior has a loyalty program. But unfortunately, artists have very fragmented loyalty programs. And of course, the rise of NFT 
NFTs and specific things as it relates to streaming platforms or even email lists. We've seen artists make great attempts, I think, at doing that and running really effective programs. But I really want to add more, more science to the arts to create, if you will, moments of magic on a greater scale so artists can better connect with their fan bases. Nice. Where did the inspiration come from? I'm sure a lot of it is things we talked about in this conversation, but yeah, what so brought much us to it? Interestingly enough, is come from writing. I've long admired, of course, Chapdel and, and other platforms and really just wanted to explore like the conversation of fan relationships. And I think fan relationships have evolved so much, but wanted to kind of like push the push the envelope in terms of what was being explored as it relates to the fan artist relationship and also highlight how sophisticated fans are. Of course, with you know the rise of, of stands and how much they're covered, I think that people think of fans as just like, okay, like a casual listener and then the overzealous fan. And I think that's such a, there's such a gap and fandoms operate in such a sophisticated way that we, we really needed to push the conversation on what that looked like. And as a result, the more I kept writing, the greater like the problem became to me in the sense of, I think there's a lot of really, really amazing platforms designed to, you know, be direct to fan and connect the artist to the fan. But for anybody that's in any type of relationship business, I think it feels a little, used car salesman to like try and extract money like immediately like hey I just met you like give me this thing and so I felt like there was a an over focus on the monetization of fan bases before fan bases were frankly strong enough to to survive that monetization so I kind of wanted to take it back a step to say if you have a really strong relationship, relationships are everything, right? You'll be able to survive and not even just survive, thrive because you can withstand volatility and maybe even turmoil. Mm. So what does it look like from the artist perspective? Like if I wanted yeah. to get involved, like what does that engagement look like? Yeah, yeah. So we're currently in the experimentation phase, playing around with products and experiments that allow us to hit product market fit. We're gearing up for a beta. So I love to talk to any artists that think really intensely about connecting with their fans. But ideally, we love to work with artists that one, want to create like what I call moments of magic. And so like some great examples is J. Cole, right? Like not only the Dollar and Dream Tour, but going to going to his fans' graduations or how do you actively and naturally involve yourself in your fans' life in a way that feels authentic and encourages a bi-directional relationship. As a result, a lot of the work that we're doing is analyzing artists and their current data sets, as well as tapping into, into new data sets as a result of creating games, as well as just different forms for artists to connect with their fans. So any artist that, one, thinks deeply about this, that wants to understand their data better across multiple platforms. We'd, we'd love to talk to you, especially as we work with artists on an ad hoc basis to, to gear up for the launch of the platform. Makes sense. I mean, as we both know, this type of need is more crucial than ever. And there's so much data that can be misleading or misunderstood, as we've talked about before. You can't just go on follower account. You can't just yeah. go on Spotify listens. Yeah. Some of these things correlate, but a lot of them don't. Yeah, it's so true. You know, I think Spotify wrapped is always so interesting to me in the sense that it's great, right? And what became even more interesting was when fans, fans, of course, post, but then to see artists post, right? And kind of what that meant for them and the excitement. And so there were things that I felt like off the bat, like certain artists expected to get, right? You expected to have every country represented when it came to countries listened or just certain things represented. But I thought a lot about it. And I was just like, that one snapshot into a portion of your 
your fan base? Like, what does that tell you from an actionable data perspective? I guess before we can even know how relevant or how much you can guide your actions around those results is how much of your fan base is on Spotify. Like you mentioned in Africa, like a lot of music is listened through downloads or partnerships with telcos and other streaming platforms. People use AudioMac and Boomplay in different streaming platforms. And so without like knowing an aggregate, what your Spotify listeners even represent when it comes to your audience, it can also be a slippery slope to make directions based on the most advanced data sets if they're not really replicative of your whole audience. Right. Because I think one of the things that I often see with Spotify specifically is that people will, especially in the US, they'll use it as like a rule of thumb to say that, okay, you see the data that comes to you from Spotify, you multiply it by three or three and a half or four, and maybe that gives you a rough idea of how big the overall streaming market is for a particular artist. But that works in the US. That doesn't work for artists elsewhere. So being able to see those distinctions, especially considering how global the music industry is, that's where people can actually make actionable insights. Exactly, exactly. I think, you know, artists really starting to approach their careers from a global standpoint will be really, really helpful moving forward. And as they consider the elasticity of their own careers, especially given that like smaller markets can be more forgiving, right? And so even if you don't want to maybe necessarily go through the 50 city, 500 person venue tour, what about going to just a smaller market globally and getting that feedback, being able to perform, really connecting with your fans that way too. I completely agree agree with you. I think that artists are just going to really have to be global from day one. And as a result, just because you're familiar with consuming music in a certain way, isn't necessarily how your entire fan base is going to do it. So becoming more sophisticated around what that looks like and how you can best work with those platforms will be really, really advantageous moving forward. Definitely. And you're in a great position to be able to do that. So I feel like the timing lines up well with this. So for you specifically, for the people that either are listening or whether they're artists or working with artists, where can they follow up? Where can they go? Yeah, they yeah. So you can find me on Denisha Kulor at Twitter. Love Twitter. So always on there. And then you can just shoot me an email at D at standout fan as well. Sounds good. Denisha, this was great. I feel like we covered a bunch of things that are happening right now in the industry. And yeah, very timely. So thanks again for coming on. Of course. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapolo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.